across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. And welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Well, uh, the rain has finally stopped falling uh, and we have this morning, ladies and gentlemen, something of a spring in our step. We have returned refreshed from a lazy weekend, safe in the knowledge that our hard work is beginning to pay off. All last week, I was campaigning for the forgotten victims of this COVID pandemic, the hardworking men and women from the small businesses that make this country great and make it what it is. All last week, I was urging the government to bring us a kind of roadmap out uh, of the lockdown that is killing so many livelihoods and so many formerly vibrant communities. And this morning, it looks as though all the noise we made is beginning to pay off. Government ministers acknowledged over the weekend that restrictions would have to be filled and lifted and that we now need a plan to do so. And Nadim Sahar, we told Julia Hartley Brewer exactly the same. Precisely is what I would say. Now we can crack on uh, with defining just what the causes and effects of the lockdown are so that we can plot our escape. So Desmond Swain put it best with Julia Hartley Brewer this morning. It is, after all, a matter of urgency. We'll be checking in with John Rental, Chief Political Commentator from The Independent. There's much to discuss, much to talk about. Hope in the post for an awful lot of people. Uh, we're told that five million vaccinations could be handed out uh, very, very shortly. We're told that by February the 15th, uh, the top four vulnerable groups should all have been covered by the vaccination. So uh, let us make a plan. Why not? 0344 499 Peter Hitchens joins us too with his latest take on those attacking lockdown sceptics and changing them into COVID deniers. Plus, we'll talk about the now row surrounding Lord Sumption and his appearance on TV yesterday. Is one life worth more than another? As ever, of course, we need to hear from all of you out there uh, because we need to know what you're seeing, what you're hearing and what you are being told. We need your eyes and ears as well. And quite frankly, if you want to tell me that you're very concerned about loads of people going to a park, I'm not interested. If you want to tell me that Matt Hancock shouldn't have been playing rugby in the park, I'm also not interested. 0344 499 1000. If you can't go anywhere else, you go to a park, don't you? It was a lovely day yesterday. I was at the beach down in Sussex. It was absolutely mobbed. Crazy, crazy busy. But I wasn't going to start reporting people for going out in the fresh air by the seaside to walk where there's quite a lot of wind. Coming up later on, we've got Simon Calder on the latest complications on negative testing for travel. And Charles Ray will be here with the latest from the world of Harry and Meghan. Plus, can your employer force you to have a vaccine or indeed a test in order to come to work? And Tory MP Andrew Rossendall wants us to set up plans for the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, which takes place next year. We'll also be bringing you the news that 25,000 patients have caught coronavirus in hospital since September. That means they didn't go in with it, uh, but they got it while they were there. That's one in six. We've been asking for that figure. Also, we'll be telling you why every 30 seconds another COVID victim is admitted to hospital. Where are they all going? You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course... Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, I must confess, I had a rather busy weekend batting away lots of mad lefties who seem to be uh, very obsessed with how I look, uh, why, how I dress, what I say, uh, and why I'm on the radio and not on the television. Well, unfortunately for them, I am on the television. I'm on YouTube, I'm on Facebook, and I'm on Twitter, live streaming. So you can watch me, uh, even if you don't like the way I look, you might not like what I say. But just watch it anyway, because then we'll all make more money. Let's talk to John Rental, Chief Political Commentator at The Independent. John, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. They don't like the way I look either. 
I know, isn't, I it, isn't it extraordinary? I mean, I mean, I, I, I get you on here for many reasons, John, not least to your very sharp intellect, but also your magnificent library bookcase behind you, which, which <laughs> looks, is one of the more fabulous backdrops to anyone that we get on this show. Um, well, that's that's all right. But my face apparently looks like a vampire. So uh, I get an awful lot of. Uh, well, you know, in some in some parts of the world, that's considered to be very attractive. Well, I mean, in this part of the world, I consider it to be all right. Yeah. Listen, uh, there's nothing worse than people with ugly views and ugly kind of uh, nasty things to say, which is unfortunately what Twitter seems to have now become exclusively. It used to just be like that occasionally. Now it's just like that all the time. But let's not talk about Twitter because it's not important enough for us uh, to even consider in terms of weighing up what in terms of weighing up what the, the people of this country think. But, you know, there is a, a sense this morning, I think, that you know, you know we're beginning to win the vaccination battle. Um, certainly, Sir Desmond Swain this morning was saying that uh, that he's looking now for um, a kind of a route map out of here, as we were asking for last week. What's your take on it? Yeah, no, I think the most important thing is that the level of infections seems to be declining quite sharply mm. in London and the uh, south and the east in particular. Um, and... You know, as the vaccine as, as the vaccines roll out, um, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And as you said, I mean, if if we can vaccinate the the top four priority groups by the middle of February, give it two weeks to to take effect, then by the end of February we should be in a position to ease some of the restrictions. And I think that's uh, that's an entirely good thing. I was I was a bit worried that the prime minister last week seemed to be suggesting that oh no, we won't be able to ease the restrictions. Uh, that much because you know it's still serious for younger people but I think uh, I th- I think the debate will start to tip uh, in the direction of uh, of, of uh, easing the restrictions yes because I think uh, as, as Desmond Swain said it's important now to kind of look scientifically at the lockdown because up until now it's always been a bit of a blunt instrument and, and almost everyone even those who are in favor of lockdowns are not in favor of them if you if you know what I mean because they they know that they're a bit of a blunt instrument but it would be good if it could become more refined wouldn't it and sort of you could say, well, look, there's obvious, like we know, for example, this morning from Public Health England, that 25,000 people have been infected in hospital since September. Yeah. I think once we can start kind of nominating and finding out where people are getting the infections from, you know, then we could perhaps open up other areas. Well, I think there's certainly a case for moving to a position where people are more able to choose for themselves whether they're to, uh, to protect themselves. Uh, from from the risk, given that, uh, you know, with the vaccines uh, spreading, it means that, you know, it will be less dangerous. So uh, I think it was interesting, the, the German foreign minister, for some reason, just uh, popped his head up uh, yesterday and suggested that uh, people with who've been vaccinated should be allowed out to go to the restaurants and, uh, and theatres. Mm. I mean, I don't know who's actually going to serve them and, and, and put on the shows, but... Uh, I think I think that is a debate that we will need to have in this country as well. Yes. I mean, I think in terms of who serves them and who and who puts on the shows, people presumably who consent to do so, because in the end, there are going to be lots of people who are willing to go back to work who haven't worked for almost a year um, because they need to. Exactly. And and I, you know, I mean, I think the risks for young people are still uh, incredibly low. Uh, and I think, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly of the view that, you know, once you've protected the, the elderly and the vulnerable, uh, I think that is, that is essentially job done. Mm. Um, I mean, obviously there are, there are complications, but I think we should be looking to, to open, up, uh, open up society and the economy as quickly as possible. Uh, and, you know, looking to do that at the end of February. Yes, because I think at the end of the day, um, 
we need to get the economy going again. I mean, there are lots of people that I talk to uh, who have gone through all sorts of terrible uh, uh, mills in terms of, you know, opening, closing, reopening, closing, getting stock in, watching it, you know, go to waste, all of that. I mean, I was I was talking to somebody last week over in Borough Market and they're actually quite optimistic, but they all say as long as we've got some idea of what, you know, what we have to prepare for, you know, we yeah. can probably survive. Um, and in fact, some of them were even saying, actually, there were so many tourists coming here towards the back end of 2019 that we actually prefer it this way because it's now become a local market for local people, which is a kind of interesting way to look at it as well. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, no, I think that all, all that is true. Um, I think the you know, there's still a, a, a potential danger from uh, new variants of the virus, which are uh, resistant to vaccines. Uh, which is something you've got to look out for. And that's why I think it's, it's so important to have the machinery in place, uh, in particular to quarantine people at airports uh, when they arrive. I'm not saying we need to do that all the time, mm. but we need to be able to, 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 to have those measures ready if there are new variants yes. that pop up somewhere in the world uh, that are vaccine resistant. Because I think that is the, that is the main threat um, for the second half of this year. But you know, I mean, if you listen to the to the people who know what they're talking about on on Sage, uh, you know, they say that there are new variants occurring all the time. Yeah. But the, the risks of one which is resistant to to the vaccines is is not particularly high. So I think I think we need to press on uh, full steam ahead and try to open up uh, open up society and the economy as, as fast as possible. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think most people as well would, would agree that uh, when the Brazilian one was discovered, the government actually did act uncharacteristically quickly to stop flights coming in, not only from Brazil, but from places where Brazilians might have flown to then come here. But the, the interesting thing for me is that as long as you're going to try and um, lock down the country, it makes absolutely no sense to have people arriving in it from all parts of the world without being checked. Um, well, that's not that's not strictly true. I mean, it just depends where the where the new infections are coming from. If they're coming, if 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 the new infections are coming from within the country, then uh, th then it doesn't make sense to close down the close down the borders um, until you've got uh, until you've got the infection right down to, to low levels. But I mean, I, I think I think after the after vaccination, that is no longer a, a an important issue except for new variants which are vaccine resistant. Mm. And I, as as I say, I don't think we need to worry about them. Uh, too much. Uh, we need constant vigilance, obviously, but I think we need to focus on on getting the country back to normal. Yes, no, I totally agree with you. I mean, interestingly enough, you know, the Neil O'Briens of this world, who seem to have become like sort of, you know, COVID evangelists overnight, uh, who suddenly, uh, he's, he's described uh, by other Tories as Matt Hancock's house elf, which would be a terrible uh, <laughs> phrase to have to repeat in one of your columns, John, but uh, I wouldn't want to put that in your head. But the point is this, right? Here's a guy um, who now says that uh, all COVID deniers, as he calls them, who are not actually COVID deniers at all, uh, keep getting it wrong. Well, I mean, I'm sorry. There are very few people in the whole COVID pandemic who got anything right, aren't there? Well, that is, that is a fair point. But I do think Neil O'Brien is an excellent MP who has done a an extremely good job. Why has he uh, suddenly become an evangelist on behalf of uh, COVID, though? Well, because I think uh, there is an awful lot of misinformation um, online. Uh, yeah, and he uh, keeps drawing attention to it. Well, he keeps rebutting it, which I think is very important. I think it's important to point out. That yeah, but he's not uh, rebutting it in the way that I would rebut it if I was a very good MP, because what he's doing uh, is he is tarring many, many people with the same brush. I mean, you cannot put Julie Hartley Brewer in the same boat as Ivor Cummings. So it's just not right. You know, Ivor Cummings uh, is a bloke selling diet pills. Julie Hartley Brewer is a very well-respected political journalist. 
Well, true, and I don't, I, do, I don't agree with with call, calling people uh, COVID deniers either. I don't, I don't like. Uh, I mean, that's that's a phrase borrowed from Holocaust denial. Yeah, I think that, that's it's not helpful. That, is it? That's rhetorical and over the top. But uh, but given given all that, I think Neil O'Brien has done a absolutely sterling job of uh, of exposing some of the some of the sloppy reasoning and arguments that have been. Uh, pushed online by people who who are opposed to the lockdown for political reasons but don't have any alternative. Yes, but there are also plenty of sloppy um, examples on, on the side of government as well. You know, we've had Patrick Vallance, we've had Chris Whitty say all manner of different things and all of which are available to watch uh, as they made those statements previously. But we don't do that constantly because the whole point of uh, this pandemic is that it has moved remorselessly from one corner of the room to another and then back again in a different form. You know, the fact is, is that there's an awful lot that we didn't know about this back in March. There was an awful lot that we didn't know about things that we know about now. For example, the fact that we are being uh, considering making mask wearing compulsory in the street uh, when Patrick Vallance was quoted earlier in the year last year as saying that, that masks were, were not actually a very good idea. Yes, well, I mean, obviously knowledge, is, knowledge has changed. Yes, um, what I mean. Still an awful lot we don't know about uh, coronavirus, but I don't think you can equate uh, uh, anti-lockdown conspiracy theories with uh, with some of the some of the possibly unwise things that Sir Patrick Vallance. Yes, and Chris but you Whitty see, you've fallen stayed. into the same trap again. I'm not talking about the conspiracy theories. I'm not talking about the. I'm talking about the journalists, and I count myself as one, uh, who have been sceptical about some of the lockdown measures, and I really don't think it's fair uh, or indeed ethical to lump everybody together. Uh, fine. I mean, no, I don't think it is either. But I, I think anyone who, who has questioned the lockdown uh, and, and the restrictions has to propose an alternative policy. And I think that's the weakness of, uh, of your position, Mike. Well, I propose plenty of uh, uh, occasional policies. If you wish to have them, I can give them to you and roll them out for you anytime you like. You know, there is no evidence, for example, that shows that a COVID secure restaurant or bar, uh, which has got screens, which has got uh, staff wearing masks, who are serving people at tables only in a very quiet atmosphere. There is no evidence that that spreads COVID at all. So I have suggested. I'm not sure, no, I'm I have not sure you're right. Well, I am sure I'd I'm like, right because the evidence of like... infection, the evidence of infection, is no more than three percent coming from those hospitality areas, and you can go and find those figures if you wish. However, uh, in hospital, it now turns out one in six people who are infected with coronavirus got it when they got to the hospital. Yeah, no, I think I think that is a that is a real problem, and uh, you know, obviously, not enough was was done to to deal with the problem of infection in, in hospitals. Mm. But again, um, it's difficult to know. You know, what I mean, what do you? What are you proposing as a result of that of that statistic? Are you suggesting that people shouldn't go to hospital? Well, I, no, uh, that, but that would be no, but that would be the argument of those people who think lockdown is a great idea. Shut the hospitals. That's where it all is. That's my my, <laughs> my point is to to, to 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 point to the ludicrousness of of those kinds of conclusions being drawn because you can't close the hospitals, can you? But no, people, good. Well, I'm glad. That, I'm glad you're not proposing that. No, that's thank you very much indeed. I'm not that stupid. <laughs> that's excellent. So, but, in, in what, in which case? I mean, you know, obviously that figure is important and and and, and worrying. But right. I mean, so so let us so let us by that same argument, John, talk about schools, which I don't think should be closed. Okay. Now there are ways of protecting schools. I realise that schools are a much more dangerous place than pubs or restaurants because they cannot be made as COVID safe as either of those hospitality venues. Yeah. And yet we are looking at them and saying oh my goodness me, there's less infection in schools than there is in hospitals. We can keep the hospitals open, but we can't keep the schools open. 
you don't have a choice about hospitals because you've got, you've got to treat people. Well, I don't believe Ill. we should have a choice about schools either because kids are suffering massively. Mental no, health I'm... is on the increase. People's teenagers are absolutely going insane and we're just yeah, letting you... it happen. Yeah, you and I agree on that, Mike, actually. I mean, I think, and, I, and to be fair, I think I think the Prime Minister and even Keir Starmer agree on that. They're very, very... I don't think Keir Starmer knows what he thinks. Well, but, you know, the Prime Minister was, I think he was forced by the seriousness of the situation, particularly the new variant, which spreads more easily, uh, to take a decision he really didn't want to take, which, is to, which was to close schools, because um, although it is, you know, it's obviously absolutely crucial that we protect children's education, um, you know, they are places where the, where the virus does spread uh, between households. Uh, and I think the prime. Well, you're asking me. For, well, you're asking me for solutions. <laughs> Why not uh, vaccinate teachers? There's a solution. Well, that's not that's not the problem. The problem is children um, exchanging it and taking taking the the virus to different different households. Vaccinating teachers is no. That's not true right. because the teaching union said that they couldn't go to work because it was too dangerous for them. So once they're vaccinated, it won't be dangerous. Therefore, they can go. Well, yeah, but I mean that 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 means you're you're going to be putting teachers ahead of the queue, uh, ahead in the queue, of uh, of of more, vul more know, vulnerable, well, older, no, older no, people. No, no, you just just roll out more. No, just roll out more vaccines, John. Well, the, the, yeah, but the the point is the vaccines have to be delivered in in some kind of order, priority order. You can't just sort of decide to deliver them to everyone. Yeah. You make it sound as if I'm the first one. person that suggested this, John. I mean, there are plenty of MPs who think vaccinating teachers is actually a good idea. And I'm saying that if you want to find ways out of it, you can't ask me for solutions and then poo-poo every solution I give you. Well, I can. I can ask you for solutions. Typical independent wrong, writer. I can point out why they're wrong. Yeah, I you'll mean, never be in power, so you don't have to know what it's like. <laughs> well, yeah, but I'm actually quite sympathetic to people who are in power and have to make these difficult decisions. And I think they make most of those decisions for for good uh, for good reasons. Uh, and now, I think, you know, although we it's our job to criticise them and point out other other possibilities. I think actually on that one, you're wrong. I don't think I don't think vaccinating teachers is a good idea. OK, well, I'll hold you to that when we come back to that, when somebody decides it is a good idea and they actually do it and then they reopen the schools. But let me finish uh, with something even more surprising for you, John. Uh, I'm going to be in agreement with the Labour Party here uh, on this argument this afternoon about universal credit. Makes no sense whatsoever for the Tories to take it away, does it? Uh, no, it doesn't. Um, and, you know, they are they are going to concede that eventually, I'm sure. I mean, it, I, th I think Rishi Sunak in the budget, um, which will be coming along in March, will actually agree to to extend it. I don't think he'll extend it in, indefinitely because, you know, he's desperate not to set that precedent, not to raise mm. the level of uh, of universal credit permanently, um, which is why he's he's come up with this uh, this scheme to to sort of buy off the dissent by giving people a lump sum for worth. That's worth an idiotic idea, those. isn't it? Well, no, that's, that's one way of, of sweetening the pill, isn't it? You say, you say, right, I'm going to put the universal credit back down to the old level, but you know, here's here's six months worth of the of, of the twenty pound a week. Uh, you know, that's that's quite a good way, it seems to me, of of, of trying to end it. But I mean, it's not going to work. Uh, it's not going to persuade anybody. Well, I heard and... one Tory MP this morning who's in favour of actually keeping the payment, saying that giving that money in a lump sum is very unconservative. Well, it, it, it well, it, it's a, it's a device. It's a way to try and achieve the the the, the cut. Uh, but it's not it's not going to work because I mean. I think the problem is that what the coronavirus crisis has exposed is is how low the levels of universal credit really are. And I think that's only sort of just sunk home to people. 
and I think it's going to be very difficult politically for the Conservatives ever to uh, ever to reduce that uh, that twenty pound a week rate. Mm. Yeah, I think that's probably right, John. Thanks very much indeed, as ever. Uh, we should join you again soon, I'm sure. Uh, to another uh, very very stimulating conversation to kick off Monday morning uh, here at Talk Radio. Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand is the number. As I said, we are live streaming on Facebook, on Twitter, uh, and on YouTube as well. That's where you want to be. Go and uh, sign up to it. Go and subscribe to it. We're going to get loads and loads of other videos about uh, around for you. We're going to do Plank of the Week this week, of course, as well. All sorts of things going on. This is Talk Radio. Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Time to say a very good Monday morning to Mr. Peter Hitchens. Peter, how are you? Well, so far, so good, Mike. I won't <laughs> make any great claims on that. Uh, yes, well, I think that we can all be thankful for that. I mean, I, I, I suppose it tells us about the kinds of times we're living in. When I was watching the arrest of that Russian dissident uh, as he arrived back into Moscow yesterday on the news, uh, your, your visage came into my mind, and I wondered if at some point or other in the next 12 months we'll be seeing you arrested for similar crimes against the state. Let us hope not. Yes, let us hope not, absolutely. But ridiculous that it would even occur to me that, that that's where we are, because over the weekend, Neil O'Brien MP, he seems to have appointed himself um, as, you know, sort of a COVID evangelist-in-chief, having a go at people, calling them, moving now away from the conversations about um, lockdown scepticism, now actively calling journalists COVID deniers. Yes, I, this goes on and on, and I, it simply impels me to go back to my original point from which I have not shifted since March, which is that whatever else you may say about this event, the action of the government has been wholly disproportionate to the problem and has deeply damaged the country. Uh, we now see talk of a, a, a wealth tax, so-called, which would actually be the most tremendous raid on the middle classes and all the savings they've piled up over many years of hard work and thrift, uh, which is one of the ways in which we may have to pay uh, for the catastrophic decision of the government to, to an unprecedented, I should say, decision of the government to shut down the country. I would say again, that these things have happened before. We're told the only comparison that we can make is with the 1918 to 1920 so-called Spanish flu. But there have been two similar influenza epidemics in between that, the, the 57-58 Asian flu and the 68-69 uh, Hong Kong flu, so-called, both of which don't apparently show up in the statistics quite as strongly as they would because they span two years rather than one. But it, these, these have happened before, and no government ever before, and indeed the World Health Organization opposed uh, the sort of actions that we have now, the quarantining of the healthy, the shutting down of economies and the destruction of, of, of lives by uh, poverty and loneliness and deprivation of medical treatment, which is taking place on an appalling scale. So... That is the point that I've made from the start, and I stick to it. It doesn't matter when anybody calls me uh, or or anything else. I have not denied the existence of COVID as a ridiculous and stupid thing for anybody to do, and I wouldn't dream of doing it. And the, the expression, as I say repeatedly, is a dog whistle smear mm. uh, designed to equate legitimate dissent uh, with the revolting Holocaust deniers. And I, I just think that people who do it are behaving disreputably. Yes. And uh, frankly, is, anybody is... who's a member of parliament who behaves in that fashion should look carefully at the, uh, the rules of, of, of Parliament itself, which prevents this kind of behaviour mm. in its chamber and, and, and should quite rightly influence the rest of us outside. I, I, I'm not going to respond personally to it, but I think that anybody who, who takes this view is discrediting themselves the moment they say it. Mm. I do try in all this argument to be fair to my opponents, to assume that they have good motives 
and that their intentions are, are good and kind. And I ask only the same in return. Yes, I think that's absolutely fine and absolutely fair. And you're quite right. You have been very consistent from the beginning uh, when you and I first disagreed uh, yep. to, to the point we have now reached where we, we more or less agree on an awful lot of it. I mean, one of the things I'd like to see, uh, and this is what Sir Desmond Swain was asking for this morning on Julie Hartley Brewer's show, was an actual proper kind of scientific analysis of why the lockdown has worked, in which parts of the country has it worked, in which businesses has it worked, and what the benefit has actually been of closing down the economy. And I think that's a very legitimate question to ask at this point. Well, it is a very legitimate question to ask, but you won't get an answer because the government knows perfectly well what the answer would be. It's not justified. Uh, the damage done is out of, wholly out of proportion to any good which may have been done, and there is still absolutely no evidence that these lockdowns do any good at all. So many surveys, uh, good objective surveys of all the countries uh, which have undertaken these measures or haven't around the world come up with the same answer over and over again. There is no evidence that closing down your country reduces the number of deaths, and yet people persist in doing it, even though it's never been done before. And well, the it, only places it, it, where the only places we are told about all, where they've had successes are Australia which in fact closed its entire country down to, to anybody coming into it, and of course locked down people with curfews and all manner of things, similarly uh, as they did in Vietnam. However, um, they didn't do that here because that's not the way that we locked the country down. So our version of a lockdown isn't the same as anybody else's. And when you are challenged on this, people will say, oh, but that's not true to say lockdowns don't work. Well, this lockdown doesn't work, and that's a very big difference. No, I, I, I would go further than that. I, you look at places like Australia, it's... it's You've presumably been there, and I have. I haven't actually, no. I don't think I'm going to get there either before I die. It's an incredibly long journey, and it, it, it is way off all the major national travel routes. Uh, Australia has done itself in great economic harm, as has New Zealand, by the policy it's adopted. Uh, but we don't actually know uh, that the, the, the lower incidence of the disease in Australia is the result of these actions that have been taken. Uh, and you, you can you could equally well say that Antarctica or the Falkland Islands or Tristan da Cunha or, or, or St. Helena or, or Ascension Island or any of these un, largely unvisited places have had a great success with COVID because I'm sure their statistics are also low. Uh, but, but the reason might actually be simply a matter of geography. So let's not attribute uh, causation to something which we don't yet know. What is certainly the case is if Britain had tried to behave like Australia at the beginning of this, it, wouldn't, it simply wouldn't have been possible. Being where we are, mm. uh, a major transport hub off the northwest coast of Europe with enormous amounts of travel to, to around the world and particularly also to North America, it, it, wouldn't, it simply would not have been possible. And, so, and with enormous amounts of trade passing through the ports of this country and the airports of this country. Well, that's, that is also true. But I just uh, the, the whole thing here remains. I mean, there, there is no evidence, that there's, there's no evidence of correlation and there's no evidence of causation. And yet people keep doing it. It's the, the same is true, of course, of the, the face coverings issue. The, the evidence for their usefulness is scanty to the point of non-existence. But the, the presumption of all media, all politicians and, and, indeed the, the, and the public is that they work, so people wear them. And it, it, there, there is a complete uh, retreat from rationality and uh, the scientific method going on. Well, there's also a complete retreat from many of the statements that were made by public health officials in this country at the start of the lockdown, in which they professed to say uh, that mask wearing was not going to be made compulsory because there was no evidence that it would actually help. 
Sure enough. And, but that's just it. I, I tend to feel that we are in the group of something very closely resembling superstition here at the moment. Mm. And I would much rather, for the sake of the country and the people, their health, their lives, their sanity, all the things which are being worn away at the moment by this unending ordeal, uh, if, if we actually readopted the scientific method of serious experiments and, 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 and hard, testable evidence from it, and based our, based our actions on that, I, I genuinely think that if we pursued a more modestly targeted but, but more scientific approach to this disease from the start, we would have had fewer deaths. Mm. And, that, and, and that, I don't think, if people say, well, if, if, if people would only take the lockdown more seriously, then more people would, would survive. I don't think that that's necessarily true. And also, I'm, I am appalled by the way in which people keep accusing the public of not abiding by the rules. I go about a lot, I see almost nobody not abiding by no. the rules. I think compliance is an extraordinary. I think the government is preparing its excuse and its get out for the failure of its third useless lockdown. Mm. And when it fails, we'll be told, oh, well, you went out for 10 minutes more than you should have done. You had more exercise, yeah. you breathed harder than you should have done. Uh, one person in 20,000 didn't wear a mask in Tesco's. That is nonsense. Mm. Uh, if the lockdown worked, these things would be would be trivial side issues. If it, if it, if it doesn't work, they make no difference. Well, but this I, is I the thing. I mean, we know... We, blame we, the public in advance. We, we know several things today that we didn't know before. I've been asking the question for quite a long time. We've now got from Public Health England a figure of 25,000 people who have been infected with coronavirus in hospital since September. They got it when they went into hospital hospital they didn't have it before they went in and then they got it so one in six people in hospital is actually infected by the hospital itself now the logic of the lockdown fanatics would be therefore you shut the hospitals but of course that's not what we're going to do the other one uh, is the propaganda a, arm. Like a, a small point about that. yeah we have a problem here it's been back in the days of new labor when when john reed was was health secretary there was a huge difficulty of mrsa and cdc hospital yeah. inquired uh, hospital-acquired uh, infection, yes, which is a problem to some extent of the kind of huge hospitals we have, which are simply not designed, for instance, for isolation. If you have lifts visiting every floor, then you can't really isolate any floor from the other in any effective means. We, we used to have, and I suppose there must be some surviving, quite a large network of isolation hospitals where the sick were quarantined. Mm. But now we have hospitals which are almost bound to be exchanges of infection. And it is, I mean, it's very difficult to make sense of these figures because, first of all, of the nature of testing, which looks only for COVID. Uh, and secondly, because of the, the fact that anybody who goes into hospital is quite reasonably tested for COVID, we still don't really have a clear idea of exactly what uh, most of these figures mean. But it is, it's absolutely true. Uh, and this also happens to doctors and medical staff, uh, that, uh, that the, the, the most likely way of obtaining is almost certainly to go into a hospital. And then there is the other thing, which I keep stressing here when we're told that things are bad in hospitals, which I don't doubt, is that the enormous amount of self-isolation by NHS staff who've tested positive greatly reduces the number of people available to treat those who are ill. Yes, right. Uh, and, is, and, and, has, and, and therefore the, the, the proportions of numbers of ill people and numbers of people available to treat them have been seriously skewed by this. Yes. Uh, it, it well, apparently a, there could be as many... Really 
there could be as many as 30 percent of the frontline employees uh, of hospital wards unable to work currently because of a mixture of those two things and that's obviously also the reason they give us for not being able to open the nightingales but i read i don't know whether you did a very interesting piece by robert hardman who visited the royal free hospital in north london which was searing and and terribly upsetting and and obviously it's it's a terrible situation in many places but here's another anomaly for you you know the sort of the propaganda arm of the nhs to simon stevens said um just to sort of alarm everybody that every 30 seconds uh, apparently there's somebody admitted to hospital with covid well if the hospitals are all full up what are they doing with all these people well i i, I puzzled over that statistic but I, I haven't yet managed to get to the bottom i think it, i think it's right it's saying that well, it counts for about twenty thousand admissions a week which is about right but that means there must be space for them i i, I haven't worked it out but what, what also interests me is this other very very important thing is that I think quite a few people are now recovering from COVID in hospital, yes. but they can't be transferred out of hospital if they if they if they normally live in care homes. So very large numbers of people remain in hospital even though they have in fact recovered. Mm. And we also I think we've we still haven't got reliable recovery figures uh, on this matter, and it, it's it's difficult. I tried at the beginning of this to be extremely rigorous about obtaining figures from the government departments and, and NHS. Um, NHS departments and all the rest of it. And I found that over and over again, I asked questions in a form which they weren't prepared to answer. They would mm. send me the figures in. And if you've ever wrestled with statistics, you'll know that it's crucial how they're arranged yes. in the first place, whether they're actually answering the category that you want. I found it almost impossible uh, to penetrate the maze of statistics in this matter. And I also felt there was a strong unwillingness on the part of the authorities to, 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 to give stuff which might which might um how shall i say undermine the message yeah so i i can't i can't establish this for certain it certainly felt that way yes so well certainly there's no doubt because it's noticeable that some of the some of the, the institutions which have previously been providing what might be called independent sources of, of slightly different information seem to have gone rather quiet lately a, a, a thing which i find rather puzzling i don't mm. quite know why no well there's no doubt that since the advent of the the blairist um, uh, information commissioner uh, and the Freedom of Informa- Information Act it's actually been more difficult to get information out of them because what they've managed to do rather cleverly uh, is to completely box in all of the ramifications of asking a particular question uh, and lining and lining up any sort of possible answer that would make any sense and what they're very good at doing uh, is now saying that they can't answer a particular question because the amount of money involved in, in finding the answer uh, would not be worth doing. There's also the round the houses trick. Yeah. Where you're, or you, you, you ask the, the Department of Health, they say, no, it's the NHS. The NHS say, no, it's Public Health mm. England. By the time you've gone around all three of them, they've all referred, <laughs> referred back to the place where you started. Right. The, week, the week has come to an end. I, I just got so... so. And, and if you ever do get any other, it's, it's a fire hydrant. Yeah. And, uh, Oh no, it's the same. It's the same. Uh, it's the same. If you can. Yeah, it's the same strategy they use uh, in the local council to make you pay your parking ticket. By the time you've exhausted all the various appeals, you've worked out actually you might as well just pay them because it's just a lot simpler. It's beaten down. Yeah, yeah. I know. It's, it's, but it's what I. The only point I made to you is, is that the statistics which we now have, I, I think, are, obviously the. I'm not questioning the accuracy of the figures, particularly the, the, the death figures, which is beyond doubt. It's the interpretation of them, which is very difficult to make in the absence of facts, which mm. I certainly haven't been able to get hold of. No, sure. Now, as per the um, uh, the information I gave you on Twitter the other day, I'm trying to organise 
an interview, um, a debate actually, really, a sort of head-to-head -head between you uh, and Dan Hodges. And the reason it's proving difficult is partly due to the, the restrictions that we currently live under. I would rather do it in person because I think that's far more uh, uh, far more worthwhile rather than doing it on Zoom because apart from anything else, it's much easier to interrupt both of you if you're actually in the room because other, what I don't want is to have a sort of a, a two no. people talking over each other constantly, which, which might happen. So that's the only reason for the complication. Dan has since said that he'd rather not do it in person I assume he has some reason for that. Um, I think he, I think he may, but I think the the, the thing is, I, if Mr. Hodges wants to do it remotely, then then I'm very happy with that. And I can see there are logistical difficulties with getting us all into the studio, mm. which which we don't need to discuss, but which are there. And if it suits him, it suits me. And I am prepared to make an absolutely very firm self denial on this. I think the way to do it would be very much for to do it in a parliamentary form, where you are Mr. Speaker. Yes, uh, you give permission for each of us to speak and we address you rather than each other yes i think uh, that would I work and we'd have, we'd have to have limitations on the oh, amount of speech as well. I, I think we would both very much want to make it work mm. uh, and I, I i think that if we if, if we could make a remote program work if we try hard enough and i'm very willing to make that effort okay. and you you can remind me of that if I break those rules. Well, listen, I'm, I'm very much appreciate I, I appreciate that both of you want to do it. And so we will make it happen. But yeah. just give us a little bit of time and we'll try and we'll try and get it on, as it were, a quicker, sooner rather than later. Let me ask you, Peter, about the row. I don't know whether you're familiar with it, uh, that no, erupted over Lord Sumption's remarks at the weekend where um, he was involved in a television debate about, um, you know, the efficacy of lockdown, etc. But it sort of turned into a whether one life is worth more than another conversation which is a little bit of a tawdry take on it, in my view, because I don't think that was what he was saying. But all he was saying, really, is what the NHS quite often uses as an indicator as to what they do and how their policies work. Well, I, I'm distressed for Lord Sumption. Oddly enough, I was asked to be on that programme, but I couldn't. It was recorded on Saturday. I, that's my main working day, so I, I wasn't there. I'm distressed for Lord Sumption. I think that uh, the, the problem is that the... The words actually spoken as spoken can certainly be made to, to take the interpretation which has been given by his enemies. I don't actually think that's what he meant no. to say or what he meant, but, it, it, but you're, once that kind of thing has happened while you're explaining, you're losing. Uh, I, my, my own deeper criticism of this is that I have always tried to stay away from this idea that, some, that we can sacrifice anybody for anybody else. Uh, I actually am rather debarred from taking that view because I, I am a, a, a practicing member of the Christian church. And as far as we're concerned, everybody is made in the image of God and no life is, is, is more valued than any other. I couldn't even begin to say that anyway. It's never been my point that we should sacrifice the old for the young. Uh, and I, I know that some people on my side have taken more or less this view. Some of them uh, rather, um, rather, how should I say, firmly. Uh, and I've never really wanted to say that or thought it. No. I return to what I said at the beginning. My argument has remained from the start. This is a mistake. It's out of all proportion uh, and it doesn't work. Yes. It does terrible damage mm. to, to the, the lockdown itself. does terrible damage to the lives of people. Above all, the healthy old uh, who have been deprived by this of all the happiness and joy of life. And in many cases, I think of age terribly as a result. And I think that that's probably the most catastrophic. And yeah. also to the young going through education mm. who can never, ever recover 
what they have lost in the past nine months. Yes, no, I absolutely agree with that. And I think it's another example of the wrong argument being deliberately misconstrued, if you like, by people who would like to damage those uh, who are trying to make a completely different argument um, by sort of painting them as, as, as monsters, creatures of the dark, and people who, you know, want you to make a choice between your grandmother uh, and your child. It's just simply, I think, misleading and pretty despicable, really. Well, I think it's a shame, but I think it, is, it characterises the nature of this argument, which has become, on many occasions, very personalised and bitter. Mm. Uh, partly because I think the, uh, it's always the case, maybe the people with a bad argument uh, will turn to attacks on their opponents to, to keep people from noticing that their argument is bad. Mm. I think the argument that I've advanced has always been a good, a kind and, and, uh, and rational argument based upon both the scientific method and uh, on, on a sensible analysis of the real costs of the country. And I've got a lot of abuse for making it. Well, I'm used to that, but I regret it because it means partly that the argument has not been properly heard and that the, the government has, has, by and large, been, been able to ignore uh, this. And I now, I, I now pretty much accept that I've failed to make any impact on, on it. This policy will now be run through to the end, whenever that might be. I'm more interested in two things. One, the past in establishing what actually did happen. And secondly, the future, in making sure that whatever we do, if we have an event like this again, we don't do this again. Yes, I think that's a very fair conclusion. Peter, thank you very much indeed. And I think we have made some impact uh, over the course of the last few weeks, particularly when it comes to how to get out of this particular lockdown that we are now in, because last week I was asking for a roadmap. This week, uh, it looks as though the government is going to supply one, and it looks as though government ministers are going to supply one uh, for March the 8th, and as of uh, four points from there. Because in the end, you know, all we can do uh, is ask questions. In the end, all we can do is try to influence the policies that are being made by government, because that's what we are here for. And I'm not going to be beaten down uh, by some Tory MP who thinks that he knows everything now about a disease that hardly anybody knows everything about. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We've got much to do uh, and plenty of time to do in Mark Dolan coming up at four o'clock. Of course, we've got Ian Collins coming up at one. A plank of the week is going to be underway pretty soon. And I'm afraid, uh, even though they missed out on it last week, I have to say that Harry and Meghan uh, might be making it back to it this week. We shall see. Let's talk to Charlie Ray, uh, former royal editor, of course, of The Sun. Charlie, I'm going to say Happy New Year because I think we've spoken to you this year, have we? No, we haven't. Happy New Year, Michael. I don't know how that's possibly happened. I don't know how you could have slipped through my fingers and, and had to wait until now, the 17th of January, uh, in order to, or is it the 18th? I can't remember. Um, anyway, listen, um, apparently Thomas Markle is back in the news. Tell us about it. Well, what's happened is that apparently Thomas has, has made a new documentary, um, which uh, is about his life, but <laughs> needless to say, is going to be featuring unseen videos and photographs of his beloved, or not so beloved, daughter, Megan. Now, this uh, is due to uh, come out, I think, s sometime later this year. Mm. And it's going to be very, very interesting. I'm a bit surprised that uh, Thomas has not used his uh, daughter's own company, uh, who's now a media company, and is is planning to make documentaries. He's, he's not chosen her company to um, to uh, produce this one. Right. Now, in it is going to explain uh, by, from Thomas, you know, why the relationship went sour and, uh, you know, how he supported her all the way through. And, and let's remember, he has not seen his grandson at all and nor has he met his, um, his son-in-law. No. Uh, 
Harry uh, in any shape or form. So this is going to be uh, quite interesting, this documentary, coupled with the fact that we've got this court case that's due to come up um, later this year. In fact, there's going to be a, a bit of a preamble of it uh, in, I think, about two or three days' mm. time right. uh, in my court in London by, by Zoom. So we'll find out whether the case actually goes to the uh, to the thing um to the thing uh, uh, eventually. You yes. Know, so. Well, because I was going to ask you where we are with that, because I know that there's already been a couple of preliminary hearings, haven't there, where bits of uh, Meghan Markle's um, uh, requests have been chucked out, basically, and she's been thought to have kind of lost the early stages of, of the case. She also rather, I thought, arrogantly asked the judge if they could just get a decision without him hearing any of the of, of the case at all, which well, I thought this- was an interesting approach. But this is this is what's happening in the next couple of days. This is the summary. This is the application for a summary judgment, where she's basically saying that you know uh, you know she's right and the, the Mail on Sunday are wrong. She obviously doesn't want certain documents to be um, released mm. in uh, in public. Nor does she want her five friends who went to the People magazine no. anonymously to be called as witnesses. No. So this is her attempt to get the case resolved in her favour without actually. It being being held, you know, in in an open in an open court, yeah. and we'll have to wait and see whether whether it's granted or not. I'd be surprised and staggered if it is granted, mm. but you know, we all know what the law is like. Um, it sometimes, uh, you know, amazes you how how decisions it makes. Yes, indeed. But I wouldn't be at all surprised if there's yet another lawsuit uh, in the offing, thanks to this Thomas Markle documentary, because presumably she'll do her level best to get onto the learned friends and ask for some kind of injunction to be put on any kind of stuff that he wants to produce, which she hasn't okayed. I'll be surprised if she's not talking to the lawyers about this documentary, um, because presumably she'll know certain things that will be in it, and it'll be another vehicle and another platform for Thomas, you know, in effect, to um, re- reveal just how uh, awful the relationship has now got between b- both Megan mm. and 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 himself. Um, so I'll be very surprised if she's not talking to uh, you know uh, Sue Grabbit and Run mm. uh, at all, and <laughs> and. Uh, and see if she can try and stop this documentary. It'll be amazing. I mean, it's going to be it's going to be great television. This documentary, mm. I mean, even just for the bit. All we want to know is about the bit about Megan. Let's be honest about. It. I'm not interested what about his lighting career and how he lit. No, I mean the idea of that Thomas Markle, a guy that who nobody would have ever heard of, apart from the fact that his his daughter happened to marry into the royal family, wants to tell us about his love for filmmaking. Uh, yeah. Not really. I'm sorry, I haven't got time really for that. <laughs> no, just, just get to that bit about Megan, please. <laughs> I mean, has he done a deal yet with it, or is he? Um, uh, do you I know what 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 the plan I'm is? Not, I'm not sure. I think he's just announced that he's 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 doing it. So I'm not sure who he's done the deal with or where it's going to be. I suspect it could well be Channel Five, who seem to be getting all these great documentaries mm. just recently about royals and other other matters. They seem to have taken over from you know BBC Two for you know quite good television yes. and good documentaries. Yeah. Well, do you know what I would counsel him if he was to ask me? Whatever you do, don't sell it to Netflix because they'll be buying it on her behalf, never to let it be seen. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure it's going to be on one of the mainstream channels. Right. Uh, there's no way it's going to be tucked away anywhere. No, I think there's too much of a uh, of a money making uh, sort of uh, opportunity here for for a yeah. TV company, and that's what they like to do. Let's talk about uh, another royal scenario uh, because an extraordinary story in the Times this morning uh, from John Simpson, their crime correspondent, aged the Duke of York. And his former wife contacted a woman said to be an internet troll in an apparent effort to discredit his accuser in the Jeffrey Epstein case. 
I mean, that's extraordinary, isn't it? Absolutely extraordinary. And this is a story that cropped up in the Mail on Sunday yesterday as yeah. an exclusive. As, as an exclusive. Mm. Um, and this is a woman called Molly Sky Brown. And we have to say that she herself uh, says that she there was an attempt to recruit her as a masseuse by Gillian Maxwell, you know, the, the so-called lady lady pimp, allegedly, uh, of Jeffrey Epstein. Um, now, this is an amazing... Uh, comment that we've 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 come across here that two aides of the duke and duchess of um york mm. contacted this woman because she has been trolling virginia roberts basically saying that roberts has been lying and she you know was a a manipulator and everything else, and was also suggesting that the very famous photograph of Prince Andrew mm. with his arm around her was fake, even though we now have a situation where experts in photo manipulation have said this is not a fake, this is not a fake photograph, this right. is a genuine photograph. And that's the one that shows oh. Ghislaine Maxwell in the background, isn't it? That's right, she's in the background, and it was taken at her home. Now, mm. the, 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 the aides of the Duke and Duchess of York, and interestingly, it's the Duke and Duchess of York, not just the Duke of York, um, contacted this woman and amazingly suggested that she set up some sort of scam uh, e uh, Twitter account to try and force uh, details out from some of the, some of the victims, including v Virginia Roberts. Mm. And also, one of the one of the baits that they use, according to one of the um, according to her, was that one of these even suggested that uh, she'd get uh, the best wishes from the Queen. I mean, it's absolutely... I know. Absolutely incredible, you know, isn't it? And this is all on WhatsApp messaging, according to the story. Uh, is, through some character called Mark Gallagher, uh, who is not one of the um, persons involved in the exchange, but supposedly is one of the advisors to the Duke of York, that this person was trying to get involved in this case. And and she was initially contacted by, I think, someone called Amanda Marshall, who is an aide to the uh, Duchess, mm. uh, Duchess of York. I mean, whose recollection of this... This uh, discussion is vastly different to what uh, this uh, Molly Sky Brown is saying. Mm. Uh, but still, you know, this is a, a sign of if, if this is absolutely true, and I'm, I'm hard to believe that it's not true, this is a sign just how desperate the York, uh, the Duke of York is to try mm. and get this, you know, put away. He actually wants to try and recruit people to, you know, in effect, bad mouth or, you know, put away yeah. various people who've got allegations against them. Well, and we have I to mean, there's still allegations. Well, of course. Yeah, but there's a very simple way of putting the allegations to bed, sure. and that is to talk to the FBI and explain to them why they're wrong, isn't it? You're right. It is, and absolutely. And he should be He should be uh, speaking to the FBI, as we've discussed on a number of occasions, because, you know, there's a lot of people. We're all doing nudge, nudge, wink, wink. There must be something there. Mm. He's trying to cover up something. And that's every time we come to this story, like today, we get another sign that, you must be trying to cover something up here. There's got to be. There's no smoke without fire. You know, uh, it's 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 just incredible that he's still defying, even though he 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 said in that very famous awful Emily Maitlis interview, awful for him, not so yeah. bad for him, but, um, that he was prepared to cooperate. Well, he's not been prepared to cooperate. He's going behind the scenes and he's trying everything he can, you know, to get out of this mess that he's got himself in. Right. Also, Charles, you and I know from our various political and uh, journalistic careers, and I say political with a small p, you know, there's an elephant in the room. You can't keep ignoring it. You can't just pretend it isn't there. And every time no. he does anything, even if he walks into a breakfast with his mother, he must be thinking, I hope she doesn't ask me about that thing in America, you know? 
Well, exactly, and it's you know, and and no, and his brother, the future king. Yeah. What, what brother think every time he sees him if he does see him i mean he's now been uh you know taken off royal duties is very much in the background but he's still very much a, a boil on the royal family's bum to be perfectly <laughs> honest i mean there's no question about and it needs to be lanced yes very well put i couldn't end the interview any better charles thank you very much indeed uh, charles ray former royal editor of the sun a boil uh, on the backside of the royal family i think that's the greatest description of prince andrew yet uh, this is Talk Radio. It's the only place you'll hear that kind of talk. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. What a start to the week it has been. And I have to say, uh, you know, this time last week, I wasn't feeling particularly full of the joys of spring. But this week, I am. And despite the fact that today is meant to be Blue Monday, it's meant to be the day when everybody's really, really depressed. But I'm not at all. Uh, I'm, in fact, quite, uh, uh, shall we say, encouraged by the fact that we seem to be um, certainly doing the job with the vaccinations. Let's talk now uh, to Andrew Rossendall, Conservative MP for Romford, uh, because he wants to talk about the royal family. Andrew, very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Uh, good afternoon, Mike. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Now, um, I've, Always a pleasure. I've, I've, I've disgracefully shown my age by saying I remember the Queen's Silver Jubilee. Uh, I remember it very well. I was 17 years of age and I came home uh, and my father said to me, um, have you ever heard of a group called Queen? And I said, yes, I certainly have. He said, well, I've got two, I've got three tickets to go and see them tonight at Earl's Court. And it turned out that the next door neighbour um, was in their lighting crew and Queen did this massive concert at Earl's Court on the Queen's Silver Jubilee in 1977. And it was absolutely fantastic, brilliant, all of those things. Um, I'm hard to believe that the Platinum Jubilee uh, is next year. What is, how many years does that mean then? Well, Mike, I remember the Silver Jubilee as well. Uh, I was a, a small boy and I went up to London to watch the parade. Mm. And I remember uh, it was a magnificent day in... Uh, June of 1977 shows how long ago that is. Yes, it and, certainly was. Uh, since then, we've had a golden jubilee for the 50th. Uh, we've had the diamond jubilee for the 60th. That was 10 years ago or nine years ago. And so next year, we're going to celebrate the platinum jubilee, which is the 70th anniversary of the Queen uh, acceding to the throne. She's the longest serving monarch in history. I think she's the longest serving monarch anywhere. Um, and she's certainly the longest-serving British monarch. So yes. 70 years is certainly going to be something to celebrate in a big way. It really is. And so you've uh, got yourselves a all-party committee group sorted out. What is that going to do exactly, and what are you hoping um, that will happen? Well, look, we've had a very gloomy year, and this year's going to be maybe better, but still a bit gloomy, let's face it. Uh, we've gone through a pretty bad period, so... We hope that 2022 is going to be a year of celebration, not just because we're going to celebrate the Queen, but also because hopefully we're going to be out of this dark period. So uh, I think that all organisations, not just Parliament, but every organisation should think about how we're going to make 2022, 2022 a great year mm. and tag this on the Queen's anniversary. So we've set up a parliamentary group, cross-party, and we intend to roll out lots of activities and celebrations, but also to promote within our constituencies the importance of the monarchy, the importance of our constitution, and also to celebrate the service of Her Majesty the Queen, which, frankly, uh, if you look at what's going on in other countries, um, aren't we glad that we have a, a monarch rather than a president, someone that represents thousands of years of history and continuity and also is above politics and isn't just 
another politician seeking votes. So no, I think in this country, we should be really proud of the system we have. And what about the Commonwealth? Is there a role for the Commonwealth in that? And I mean, I, the trouble, I suppose, for, for an awful lot of what the Queen would have done in those previous Jubilee years is that she's now probably a little bit too old to be doing too much in terms of travelling and, and, and appearances and that kind of thing. You're right. And um, I don't think that the Queen will be travelling all around the Commonwealth as she has done for previous Jubilees. Um, but I think other members of the royal family hopefully will, will be able to do that. But we must remember that the Queen is also head of the Commonwealth. Uh, that's 54 member countries. And she's also still head of state of 16 of them. So Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Jamaica and many other smaller countries all still retain the Queen as their Queen as well, in the same way that we do. And then, of course, there are the British overseas territories like Gibraltar and the Falkland Islands and Bermuda and yeah. the Crown Dependencies like Jersey, Guernsey, Isle of Man. They're all going to celebrate because she's their Queen too. So this is not just a British celebration. This is a celebration that's going to take place across the world. And, of course, we have expat populations in countries and nation, cities all over the world, and they will also be seizing the chance to celebrate this great occasion. And would there be, is it a kind of a street parties theme you're looking for, or is it more ceremonial than that? Uh, it's both. Uh, clearly, uh, local communities will hold, uh, uh, neighbourhoods will hold street parties, um, local uh, village parties, but also schools and churches and community groups will, will get together and organise special occasions, whether they be parties or some other kind of tribute event uh, during the year. But in terms of Parliament, um, traditionally, we have always given a gift to Her Majesty. The last uh, Jubilee, the Diamond Jubilee of 10 years ago, we collected money and we had the stained glass window in Westminster Hall uh, redone with the Royal Coat of Arms. So I'm hoping we can also come together and give the Queen a gift, a lasting uh, tribute to her. Um, uh, something like that in Parliament. And if you remember also the Big Ben, the, the clock tower was renamed the Elizabeth Tower. If you remember that, that was suggested by my colleague Tobias Elwood and that was accepted. So right. we did, we did could at I, least could two I urge major you, things. Could I urge you at least to get the cardboard taken off it for the Jubilee year? Uh, yes. Well, I'm, I'm really hoping that um, the, the work on the tower will have finished uh, in advance of next year. And I've, I've got a feeling it will be. I think they said four years, and I think we're coming up to that now. I mean, I really think it's time, you know. I mean, I know that we don't have very many tourists at the moment, but when we were down in the tent of common sense for so many months of 2019, mm. you'd see these uh, tour tourists emerging from Westminster Station looking up and going, where is it, you know? I know. I've I've had them stop, my, stop me. I've had tourists stop me and say, can you tell us where Big Ben is? And... <laughs> And I, I point, it's very sad to see it. And it's it time is. it was uncovered, I agree. Actually, speaking of that, um, what's the story now with the House of Commons and the renovation? Because there was a lot of talk. Uh, it's probably now before COVID, because I've now lost all sense of time. And I can't remember when anything else was actually discussed. But there was talk of you guys having to move somewhere while the renovations would take place. Has that sort of been put on the back burner? Um, not a lot has been said about it recently, but I, I think there is a plan in place and although I don't, can't give you the exact date, I think that we will still be moving out. And I think the plan is that that's going to happen after the next election. Okay. The next election is 2024, mm. so it's still a long way off. And I think probably 2025, 26 is the time uh, they're going to move us out. And I believe that the House of Commons will move to Richmond House, which is 
the old Department of Health, which yes. is just near the quite near the well. cenotaph in Whitehall. Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, well, but, I mean, it, presumably they'll have to renovate that because it looks like it's been lying empty for quite a long time. I think it is being renovated, ah, and okay. I think they're creating a, a sort of artificial chamber which is going to look exactly like the current House of Commons chamber. Mm. Uh, so we will have somewhere to go. But the, the the fear is that it's going to be many years before we come back to the actual place, right. which will be great, great sadness. But I think that the work has to be done. Look, that building's been used for so many years, hundreds of years, well, 150 years, mm. more than that. Um, so I think it, it is obviously necessary to do some major refurbishment. Yes. Um, and hopefully we can come back and it will be there for another 100 years. Absolutely right. Just if I may ask you about where we are right now, a couple of things uh, have come up this morning. Um, the um, the vaccines minister was on with Julie Hartley Brewer this morning, uh, Mr Zahawi, talking about how he was in agreement with the idea that we must now try to look for some pathway out uh, of the lockdown. It could be that it's not until March the 8th, possibly, but, but certainly I think it's worthwhile now for the government to look at what could be lifted, what restrictions could be moved, whether it's gyms, whether it's schools. Are you in agreement with that? Yes, I am. Um, I've always believed that we needed a balance to this whole thing. Um, I don't disagree that there needs to be uh, strong restrictions to protect the vulnerable and to uh, limit the spread of the virus. But the idea we're going to stop it completely, I don't think that's possible. Um, and I also think we have to ensure that we have an economy to go back to because the knock-on effects of uh, continuous lockdowns are going to be devastating. Mm. I think people underestimate what's coming down the road, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, they're looking at the problems we're facing now with COVID, and rightly so, but they're not thinking about the consequences of these very severe lockdowns. So I'm always of the view that the government need a balanced approach, and the sooner we can safely uh, restart the economy and reopen uh, certain businesses and gradually get things moving again, the better. Mm. And just finally, on the universal credit debate today, we had a call earlier uh, from a listener who said that, because uh, I'd said earlier, un rather uncharacteristically for me, Andrew, I have to say, that, that I'm actually in agreement with Labour on this. It seems like the wrong time um, to lift this particular um, 20 extra £20 and get rid of it. Uh, but it just doesn't seem that the timing of it would do anything other than make everyone think that the Conservative Party was full of very horrible, nasty people who don't like the poor. Uh, but I had a call from uh, a veteran who's in receipt of disability benefit and what he called legacy benefits. And he says it's unfair because they don't get the extra £20. And that does seem a bit of an anomaly. Um, look, Mike, the, the, the situation is this. The Labour Party will always argue that we should be spending more money on everything. Yeah. Uh, there will never be a time when however generous the Conservatives are and however sensible we are in how we're trying to manage the nation's finances, they will always go one step further and say, well, we should spend more and we should keep benefits higher than they actually are. Mm. Um, government has to be prudent and responsible about how we're going to use public finances. We're already going to be in the worst debt in the history of this country. Um, however, um, I believe that anyone in genuine need should be given that support. So the £20 should remain for those in genuine need. What I'm not keen on is that we have blanket benefits for people that don't actually need it, who will then go and spend it on the wrong things. I think that we, we should target benefits. Uh, Labour would spread money around like confetti. We, we know that, but then we get the debts afterwards. I think Conservatives have to be, um, have to be uh, compassionate to those who are in genuine need, but I think we also have to be very careful about the money we're spending and the debts that we're heading into. So I think, again, a balanced approach is necessary. But I have reason to believe that 
the government are already moving on this mm. and that uh, some of the scares that are being put around at the moment will prove to be unfounded. OK, but yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that at the moment it's difficult to make an argument to not spend money, isn't it? Because so much money is going out to all and sundry, um, that apart from, say, one or two, unfortunately, uh, groups that have been left out to the side. But basically, it's very mm. hard to make the argument that you need to stop spending money unless you stop spending it in all sorts of places. Yes, but, um, you, you know, everyone can come up with reasons for spending money. Um, I can think of lots of uh, things I'd like money spent on at the moment, make a case for it. Mm. But, you know, nothing, um, there's nothing new in the world uh, since COVID in terms, of, in terms of money that just appears. It, mm. it still has to be earned. Um, so if we are talking about spending money, uh, it's no good just saying give more money to all these different things, which are all good causes, um, if we don't also consider the implications of how that money is going to be financed. Mm. Because I have to say, Mike, that some of the people that will be shouting the loudest for more and more and more money to be spent at this point will also be the people um, who uh, will have to t take the consequences for the debt that we're going to hand to the next generation. So especially younger people who think, that it's it's you know we should be spending more and more money on things. They must also realise that that it's that generation that are going to have to pick up the bill. Yes. So absolutely. I think this generation has responsibility to be prudent and not to spend money that we don't need to spend. Okay. Good to talk to you, Andrew. Thank you very much indeed, Andrew Rossendale, there, uh, Conservative MP for Romford, talking about a great many things, including, of course, uh, the Queen's uh, Platinum Jubilee, which kicks off uh, sometime soon uh, in the next year or so. Uh, I had a couple of interesting tweets on it, but uh, how about this from Music Man? I do not want a single penny of taxpayers' money spent on any Jubilee celebrations until we are completely out of lockdown for good and this country is back to normal. Not a new normal, but normal. Then maybe we can celebrate. Well, I have, for heaven's sake, I hope we're out of it by then. 2022, we're talking about. We just entered 2021. It's like a year away. I'm sure uh, that things will look an awful lot better by then. Uh, trust me on that. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.